Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown. Thanks for worshiping with us this spring break weekend. Um, before we jump into the text that Andrew just read for us, a couple of notes first. Um, once a month and also on holiday weekends, we do a more stripped down worship set. It's wonderful to sing with all of you and hear your voices. We also don't have the PowerPoint running tonight. So there are sermon notes where you grabbed your lyrics if you want to take note or follow along. Um, and also it'll be important for you to have the scripture in front of you, Genesis 25 and 27 uh, here this morning or this evening. So make sure you... Uh, Open up your Bibles or open up your Bible apps. You can follow along. Uh, A couple of things uh, that will happen at the end of the service uh, tonight, I want to let you know about now. One is, as usual, we'll have a prayer team. Uh, Folks that will be up here, they'll have a green lanyard on and they'll stand at the front here. Uh, They are here to pray for you and anything you may want to lift up to the Lord, any intercession that you need, uh, whether you feel like it's something big or small or anything in between, they're here to pray for you. Prayer makes a difference. It shows our dependence on God. It, it invites God to intervene in our reality. Also, it's a way to love one another as the family of God. So we encourage you to utilize that at the end of the service tonight. Also, if you could help us uh, by tearing down your chairs and anything else you'd like to do to help pitch in as we give our teardown team a week off as well, that would be great. And lastly, last piece of family business, as you probably know, over these couple of weeks, we're um, putting out a survey to uh, gauge people's interest and thoughts on the potential of moving to a Sunday morning service at some point. Uh, That is something that hasn't been possible here at Old Brick, but now it is possible. So we need to determine if it is good for both us and those we are trying to reach in the Iowa City community. So you can take that survey uh, through the link that came in your email. If you did not get that email, there's hard copies of the survey right back here. And make sure you join that weekly email list so you can stay aware of what's going on here at Grace downtown. So wanted to throw out all that out there now so we can just end the sermon and end the service simultaneously here tonight. So as we are going through this series called Living Stones, we're taking a look at the family of God in the books of Genesis and Exodus. Because we believe if we see the origins of our spiritual family, we will learn more about us. But more importantly, we will learn more about the promises and the faithfulness of God to his people. Last week, Pastor Josh talked to us about Isaac and Rebecca, and he hit on two main things from their story. How do we know God's plan, and how do we follow God's plan? The three ways that he instructed us uh, through the scriptures to follow God's plan is follow uh, his plan by his definition, in his timing, and make sure it's his plan and not our own. Tonight, as we learn about Isaac and Rebecca's kids in three episodes from their life, we will largely learn what not to do in regards to God's plan. Also, we'll confront a pretty heady reality, both in scripture and in everyday life, that the reality that the Bible describes for us is that God is completely sovereign over all things, and nothing happens outside of his plan. Simultaneously, we have free will as created beings. And he has given that, us that freedom to go our own way and to not go according to his plan. Tonight, as we th- see these three episodes in this one family, main, mainly between these two brothers, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah, we are going to learn what it looks like when we don't follow 
God's plan. There's a couple of different ways that we cannot follow God's plan, and the scripture tonight is going to speak to both. One way we cannot follow God's plan is by taking matters into our own hands. That's largely what we're going to see in these three episodes tonight. But the other thing that we need to address is what happens when we don't know God's plan and we don't do anything, when we're led to indecision and inactivity. Those are the two natural ways we go one side or the other when God's plan isn't clear. Would you pray with me as we open the scriptures tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for showing us who you are. God, we want to see more clearly tonight who you are. God, sometimes your plans are clear. Sometimes they're not. I pray that either way we would see you clearly here tonight. We would see your definitive plan that your scriptures reveal. God, we pray that you would speak through your word. Spirit, that you would speak to us and that we would hear from you through one another as we interact with one another and as we open your scriptures tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open with me, if you haven't already, to Genesis 25. We'll see three episodes in the life of these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. The scripture reading tonight introduced us to them. They're the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. As we open up Genesis 25, 19 through 26, what Andrew just read for us, we see in verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. This is a pretty good start because this is not always what this family has done when there is barrenness or lack of children. Often they have tried to take matters into their own hands and procure a child and advance God's plan by their own means. By through a slave woman or uh, through trying to come about the heritage in some other way. But here we see Isaac have the faith to pray when his wife, Rebecca, is barren. And we read the Lord granted this prayer and not only times one, but times two that Rebecca is pregnant with twins. We see the Lord say to her, uh, prophesying what these two kids, what these two boys will have in their future when The Lord says two nations are in your womb, not just two children, but two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And then we see that take place, that they are literally fighting within her as we see this strange occurrence in verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all of his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So we see that they are fighting even within the womb and Jacob is trying to hold on to Esau for whatever reason. I don't know if he didn't want to be alone in there or if he wanted to be first. We don't really know what's going on, but we see the beginnings of the fulfillment of this prophecy from the very beginning. So a few notes about this episode before we go on to the the next one. Uh, First, In this culture, something that we have to be aware of, not only for this story, but other stories as we read through the series, is that birth order was very important. Even when there were twins, the first one to come out was considered the oldest. And the oldest male son 
inherited the majority of the father's land and property and was often put in charge of his siblings. Birth order was a big deal. It's something that I think is important for us to understand what our birth order is and how it impacts our behavior and what our sibling relationships were like if we have siblings. But our birth order now is nothing compared to what it was in biblical times. So this was a big deal. We've seen this theme throughout scripture. Someone pointed out to me this week, it started with Cain and Abel, where we we see that even though the older brother is supposed to be the chosen brother, the one that leads, the one that gets the inheritance, the one that is in charge of things, this principle here that the older shall serve the younger and the younger finding a place of honor or being chosen by the Lord is a common theme in scripture. So this idea of birth order is very important. The next thing that we need to address is that you may not know this uh, because many of you have not been present for the birth of a child, but children come out of the womb and they look different from one another, even if they came from the same parents and even if they are twins. They can look very different. We had four sons. They're all the same gender. They all had the same parents, and they all looked very different. They have different shapes and sizes. Some of them were very hairy. Some of them were not so hairy. Some of them had a bigger, round, chubby face, and others were very slender. Some looked exactly like they look today, and some don't look anything like they do today. I wish we had slides so I could show you pictures and mortify my children right now. But I will spare them that. Fortunately for them, we don't have the projector set up. But babies can look very different, even twins. And we're told from the beginning that these twins look different. Esau gets his name from having lots of thick red hair on his body. Whereas Jacob was smooth. This was not the only difference between these boys. As we follow the story, we see that they had some other differences as well. They have different birth order. Esau is the oldest. Jacob is the younger. Jacob was a man who liked to work in the home. Uh, Apparently, um, they had some measure of wealth because the boys did not have to go out and tend to the fields. They had kind of a place of luxury and privilege where they could choose what they did with their lives because Isaac and Rebekah seemed to have means. And so Jacob chose to stay in the home, presumably spending more time with his mother. And Rebekah favored Jacob. That's what the scripture tells us. And then Esau was favored by his father, Isaac. And Esau was a hunter. He would go out and kill meat. And he was a hunter and a gatherer. So these are other differences. We also see here that Rebecca was told a little bit about God's plan, that there would be strife between these two boys and that the older would serve the younger. We don't always get as many details about God's plan as Rebecca gets here, but it impacts the story. Let's take a look at the next episode in the lives of these two brothers. Genesis 25 verses 29 through 34. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Verse 32, Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? 
Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. A few things to note here. Esau had the birthright. Because even though Jacob was holding on to his heel, Esau was born first, and so Esau has the birthright. But Jacob longs for it. We don't know all the reasons that he longs for it. Maybe he wants the approval of his father. Maybe he wants the earthly inheritance, the earthly blessing. But again, this birth order thing is very important. This birthright is nothing to sneeze at. It's very important. But Esau comes in and he's hungry and Jacob sees an opportunity. He says, I'm going to make a trade. I see that he's hungry. I've made this nice lentil stew and I'm going to sell it to him to gain the birthright. We see here that um, Esau and his people, remember we're told that this is going to be two nations divided against each other. Esau starts a whole uh, group of hunter-gatherer people and they're a nation that ends up being opposed to God's people throughout the Old Testament and they're called the Edomites. And this word Edom means red. So he has red hair on him and then he trades the birthright for this red stew. He trades them this stew for a lentil stew. So we have to kind of climb into the cultural context here. I don't know how you feel about lentils, but it's a pretty popular dish in some cultures. It's packed with protein. I like the flavor of it. You may feel differently, but it's a hearty meal. The the point here, though, is that it was an everyday meal. This is what they probably ate every day. So if you're from the Midwest, think casserole growing up. This is just what the family had. This was the common meal that they had. So this is something common, okay? Jacob has not prepared a a filet mignon here or some fancy feast. This is common everyday food for their culture. Look with me at verse 32. Let's look at how Esau views and values the things in this story. Verse 32, Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? He is so hungry and so focused on his daily physical needs that the birthright becomes something that is of no value to him. In fact, we're told he despised his birthright. Again, we're not, we don't know all the reasons why he despised it, but he valued it less Then he valued his daily physical provisions. So we see the birthright change hands. One more story, an episode in these brothers' lives. Genesis chapter 27. We're not going to read the whole thing. It lays out this entire story. And I'm going to give a summary of this story from Genesis 27. So Isaac, Esau and Jacob's father, is old. And it says his eyes are dim. His eyes are bad. He can't see very well. He sends Esau out to kill him something to eat. And he says, when you come back, I will bless you. So Esau heads out to go kill something for his father. Rebecca hears this. And thinks, here's an opportunity for my favored son to get the birthright. Now, this may be confusing to us because there was already an exchange of the birthright. And it seems like Jacob has it, right? But the whole birthright was provisionary until the father's death. And it was traditional that 
upon the father's deathbed, he would bless and pass on the birthright to his oldest son. So here Rebecca sees this last minute deathbed opportunity. Apparently his eyes are dim because his days are numbered. He knows he's dying. Rebecca knows he's dying. So Rebecca sees an opportunity and sends Jacob in to get the blessing from the father. And she takes hair from animals and puts it on Jacob so that Jacob will uh, look and smell like his brother Esau, who was hairy and was a hunter-gatherer and probably didn't smell real great. Jacob says, I am a smooth man and my brother is hairy. How is this going to work? So Rebecca takes the, the fur of the animal and puts it on. And then in verse 13, Rebecca says, if this doesn't work, you won't be held accountable and the curse will be on me. She wanted this birthright for the favored son, Jacob. And so he goes in and long story short, it works. Isaac isn't aware that it's Jacob and blesses him because he thinks it's the oldest child and gives him the birthright on his deathbed. Esau comes in with the food that he promised his father and says, here's the food, you're dying, it's time to bless me. And Isaac says, oh no, what have I done? What has happened? Look with me at verse 36, Genesis 27, 36. Esau says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Jacob, the name Jacob, has a few different meanings in Hebrew, but they're all connected. One meaning is heel grabber, which is kind of funny. He was destined from birth to be this heel grabber. But this idea of a heel grabber became an idiom, a figure of speech in Hebrew that was kind of like a euphemism for cheater or one who is in conflict with another. And Esau here says Jacob is aptly named because he has stolen what belonged to me. These three episodes are all a foreshadowing of this conflict, just like God had prophesied when they were still in the womb that two nations would rise up and be in conflict with one another. Because as we follow this family's line, we see that this son, Jacob, who wrestled with his brother, who stole the birthright multiple times, and then ends up actually wrestling with God, is the one who would be renamed Israel And his sons would be the 12 tribes of Israel and they would become the Jewish people. Three episodes in the life of these brothers and the life of this family. Last week we learned how to discern and follow God's plan by his definition and his timing, making sure we're on his plan. This week we have seen what goes wrong when we don't follow his plan. When our reality does not seem to match the promises of God, we try to grab on to a different plan or we're paralyzed and we do nothing because we're not sure what to do next. 
Everyone in these episodes shows a desire to grab on to the blessing and the provision that they need instead of trusting in God. And ultimately, this is what we do. This is the heart behind a lot of our problems, the drama in our life, the hurt in our life, the sin in our life, or our inaction, our paralyzation, or our indecision. We're just not sure if God's promises and our reality are going to line up or we fear that they already don't. So let's talk about application. What are the takeaways from this? I believe I put a few in your outline, but I did forget one that I want to make note of. So right above one, maybe put one A or something like that. First takeaway, Esau was really hairy. Oh my goodness, how hairy was this guy? His dad mistook this like animal fur on Jacob for Esau? How hairy was he? Goodness, okay. They, they just make a point of it in the story, so I wanted to point it out. Esau was a hairy dude. Okay, the rest will be more helpful, I promise. So, next. The calling of God is irrevocable. The calling of God is irrevocable, meaning it cannot be taken back and it cannot be changed. Romans eleven twenty nine states it plainly for the gifts and the calling of God or are irrevocable. These two sons, Jacob and Esau, this entire family was born under a promise. And despite their best efforts, Jacob couldn't do anything to lose the covenant and lose the promise, and Esau could do nothing to earn it. Because the calling of God cannot be revoked, cannot be changed by our sin, by our wandering, by the suffering that we endure. Jacob's story, though he was the chosen one, the one blessed by God, the one that would become the nation of Israel, is the story of someone who wrestles with God. And God's people, since that time, have been wrestling with him. Whether it is the Jewish people, or it is now us who have been grafted into that family, our story is a story of struggle and wrestling with God. Largely because when we read his promises in his word and then we look at the reality of our life, it doesn't seem to match up. The things that we have endured, the things that we have suffered, the product of living in the fallen world and the loss and the grief that we experience, when we look at our own actions and we look at the Old Testament, we think, I'm no better than these people. I would have traded my birthright for soup if I was hungry enough too. But the calling of God is irrevocable. And we see that as we see his covenant people wrestle with their calling. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 9, 10, and 11. I wish we could just pause this series right now and go through Romans 9, 10, and 11 over the next few weeks. But I'm going on sabbatical soon, so we don't have time to do that. And there's already a sermon series laid out. But in Romans 9, 10, and 11, what Paul is getting at is you can't be Jewish enough to inherit the kingdom of God. 
And you can't be good enough to inherit the kingdom of God. And you can't be too Gentile to not get into the kingdom of God. Here in Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes the book of Malachi when he says, God states, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And what he's saying when he says that, there's a number of things that he's saying. We don't have time to get into all the ins and outs of it. But one of the main things that he is saying is not whether you are a younger brother or an older brother or a Jew or a Gentile. The calling of God is irrevocable. It's about God's calling. And Paul is writing to a group of people, the Jews, that are being confronted with the fact that they have not inherited the kingdom of God based on their Jewishness, their ability to maintain and obey the law. But it's been the call of God and the work of Christ. He puts it this way in verse 8 of Romans 9. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, meaning it is not your ancestry, your Jewishness, if Jacob was your biological father, but it's the children of promise that are counted as God's offspring. It's children of the promise. He says here that the kingdom of God is open to all who would believe in the work of Christ on their behalf. Next, we learn something about sovereignty and free will. We're not going to dive into all the ins and outs of this, and I'm sorry, we're not going to solve the dilemma here today. For one thing, I don't think it's one we can solve at the end of the day. We also have a number of other things to talk about. But a question. Did Jacob receive the blessing that God had promised him because of God's call and sovereign will or by grabbing Esau's ankle, buying it for some lentils or by Rebekah deceiving her husband to get it? The answer is yes. That God is sovereign over all of these things. We have free will and he uses that free will and he uses the things that happen to accomplish his purposes. He is sovereign over all things. And we try to balance these two. We try to reconcile them in our mind and we fight over determinism or how does this all work? But at the end of the day, as we read the scriptures, we just see that they're both a reality. God is sovereign over everything, but by his good design, he has given us free will. And in that same book of Romans, in Romans 11, it says he's given us that free will so that he can have mercy on all. Next, what we desire most will drive our lives. What we desire most will drive our lives. We see that in living color in these episodes, in these stories. Jacob desired the blessing, even to the point where he ends up wrestling with God in future chapters in Genesis, and Esau despised the blessing. This motivated their behaviors. Sometimes it even motivated Jacob to go to extreme measures to get it. But what we desire most drives our lives. What we desire most, what we value most, impacts our choices. Esau traded his blessing for one meal, and Jacob literally has a life of wrestling with God. If you want to know what you desire and value most, here's some diagnostic questions. How do you feel when you are slighted? When you are ignored, when you are sinned against, when you are treated unfairly, when you are made to wait for something. 
What will you do in order to get what you want? What will you do even in a sinful way, out of the flesh, to get what you want? What do you make sacrifices for? Because we all sacrifice for something. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What do you bargain and trade in order to get? The answers to these questions will show us what we truly desire and value the most. We speak with our lips, we sing with our lips, we read with our eyes the things that we value, we proclaim the things that we value, but our actions show what we really believe. And this story is no different. Next takeaway is that God's ways are best. God's ways are best. We can trust in his ways instead of manipulating the plan for ourselves or being paralyzed in indecision. No matter what we pragmatically or theologically or intellectually believe about sovereignty or free will, at the end of the day, God's plans are best. We still desire what Adam and Eve desired from the very beginning where we started this series in January. We desire autonomy from God, to determine what is best for us. But at the end of the day, he is the one who knows what's best. And discerning his plan and following his plan is about giving more and more of ourselves to him and trusting in him to guide our steps. Have any of you ever downloaded an extension on your computer? I think they call them extensions this, these days. They called them plugins back in the day. I have one for Grammarly. It checks my grammar in everything that I spell. I would be lost without it. I started using it when I was in school, and now I use it for everything because it checks my grammar on everything. And it has taken over everything that I do. So if I type a message on my computer in anything, it tells me what I've spelled wrong. It auto-checks. It auto-corrects everything that I do. I have given Grammarly complete access and complete control over everything that I do because I need it. Have you ever downloaded an extension to your computer and it took over everything and you had to turn it off immediately? Because it just is domineering and takes over things it's not supposed to and pretty soon your whole computer's a wreck. We often see God as an extension on our computer that we can just click on and turn off and turn on to control certain things and certain programs at certain times. When instead, he deserves and desires to be in charge of everything and to be a part of everything. And his plans are good. His plans are best. And as we give more and more to him and admit our dependence upon him and give him control in more and more areas, he takes over our lives and gives us a life of freedom, of victory, of joy, of love, of peace, instead of just an add-on that we turn on and turn off from time to time. Lastly, we ultimately rest in God's amazing grace. Because at the end of the day, God had a plan for you and for me, and God has a plan for you and for me moving forward. Jacob and Esau saw a reality to, that did not match the promises of God, and they tried to hold on to it, wrestle it away, grab onto the promise for themselves, 
that Jesus, fully man, fully God, always did the will of the Father and trusted the Father's good guiding hand even though it led him to his very death. God had a definite plan for Jesus. Therefore, God has a definite plan for you and for me. In Acts 2, 23, we read, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. This Jesus who you crucified and killed by the hands of you lawless men. Right there we see in this sermon in Acts 2 that God had a definitive plan that even sinful men could not thwart or shortcut or eliminate no matter how hard they tried. Because even though the ones that Jesus came to save, they hung him on his cross, his own people, his own brotherhood were the ones that demanded he be crucified. Even though They did the most sinful thing you could ever imagine by crucifying their savior, by crucifying the one that made them. It was all part of the definitive plan of God. You don't have to be that old sitting here in this room today for something to have not gone according to plan. We have all had one or many dozens of things go wrong in our life or even just go differently than we thought or flat out don't look like the promises of God. In those moments, we're not going to sort through the theological conundrum of God's sovereignty and man's free will, but we do know that God had a definitive plan to send his son to die in our place, to give his very life for us, to say that it doesn't matter how good or how bad you've been, it doesn't matter if you're a child of Jacob or a child of Esau or what your family tree is like, what matters is that you are adopted into the family of God. That's the point. And being adopted into the family of God means trusting in Christ's work on your behalf. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definitive plan and the foreknowledge of God. God had a plan for you and God has a plan for you. And when you cannot see the plan, you can trust the one who is in charge of the plan. Would you take a moment and pray with me? Father, thank you that you have a plan. Father, I pray for your comfort and peace. Spirit, we pray that you would be our prince of peace as things have not gone according to our plans. God, when our lives does not match, things in our life don't match the reality of your promises, God, we pray that we would trust in you. God, I pray that you would be a comfort For those who are hurting, I pray that you would be a comfort for those who are unsure of your plan. God, I pray for your comfort for those who, like Jacob, have tried to wrestle away 
the plan and have tried to take control of the plan and have just made a mess of things. God, our lives are full of both inactivity and overactivity, trying to wrestle for ourselves the things that you've promised. God, may we be a people that trusts in you. May we trust in your promise. May we trust in your plan. God, thank you for the example of these Old Testament individuals, this Old Testament family that we can follow and we can see the faithfulness of God. God, it is amazing that even through his wrestling and through his sin and his manipulation, you would save Jacob, you would turn him into a great nation, and you would call him your people, and then you would graft us into that family by grace, through faith. Thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God. God, I pray for your peace and your comfort for each of us here tonight. Would you stand with me? if you are able in closing. Receive this word of assurance and comfort from Psalm 16. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh always dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen.